Well, this is an overview of my talk, The Cultural Turn in Translation Studies, Contemporary Translational Culture. I'm going to talk about translations, indirect translation, cultural translations, and then creative writing about translations, and a conclusion today. But 1990 was when this uh, book, the Translation in History, History and Culture, came out, where scholars need to investigate the production of color, culture, of which the production of translations is a part. Um, and this has uh, this put translation studies on the map in my country. We were not going to follow the sort of scientific empirical paradigm that was uh, popular in in the low countries and moved it into an area where cultural studies scholars and comparatives could get their, uh, their minds around it. Um, then in uh, 1998, she and Andre uh, published Constructing Cultures. I had the privilege of writing the introduction for that book, which I greatly enjoyed. And um, here she had the very, in a Susan Bassnett way, a very provocative at the time. It's time for cultural studies to take the translation turn and move translation to the center stage in cultural studies. Uh, 1998, translation was still really uh, a footnote. And uh, for her to make a bold statement like that uh, was really way ahead of her time. Uh, but very prophetic. Uh, I think that at least in my country, cultural studies has taken the translation turn. Last year at the MLA, the Modern Language Association, 10,000 people teaching languages all across the humanities had translation as their theme. Catherine Porter gave the keynote. Uh, there must have been 50, 60 panels on translation. The ACLA also last year at Harvard had translation as a theme, another 50, 60 uh, papers on that, and uh, Sandra Berman, the scholar at uh, Princeton, head of uh, comparative literature, and now master of the college. Uh, I'm not sure what that translates into, and maybe. Um, but she gave the keynote there. But our cultural studies people have discovered translation, uh, for better or for worse. I'm not too sure. It, uh, we'll see what happens. But at least. Yeah. So my talk today is going to talk a little bit about one aspect of that, and I call it the translation turn in, in creative writing. Um, there's a new journal coming out called Translation, published by Edizioni uh, um, in, um, in Italy and uh, St. Jerome. And um, that journal is using this phrase, uh, I don't know if I like it very much. It's called post-translation studies. Um, <laughs> we work so hard in my generation to try to get translation studies on the map. <laughs> and now there's people coming along and killing it off. <laughs> and there's still a lot of countries in the world where translation studies is just getting started. So we have to be careful before we kill it off. But I, I'm supporting this group because I have been trying to look at uh, reception issues of translation, and now I want to look at what I call post-reception issues, or um, looking beyond the initial reception uh, of translated text in a culture, and then what those repercussions are. Um, 
Sherry Simon calls this the uh, aftershocks of translation, and she's pretty good um, about it. Here's her definition, which is, I've been quoting this for a couple of years now as I've been doing some research on this. I give translation an expanded definition in this book, uh, writing that is inspired by the encounter with other tongues, including the effects of creative interference. She worked in Montreal, uh, writers such as Nico Brossard that really invented a kind of a poetic, translational, feminist language for her creative writing and has a massive influence on creative writers all over uh, Montreal, uh, men and women. Um, Sherry Simon's gone on. Uh, she's published a book called Cities in Translation. Is is that out yet, Michael? Do you know? It's forthcoming, I think. April. But she sent me parts of it. I've read parts of it. And it's she's it's it's absolutely brilliant. She's working on cities such as Trieste and Calcutta or Kolkata and, and uh, Barcelona and Manila and Doha and what she's looking at, well, I guess her argument is, is that without the translational culture of Trieste during that period, you, there would be no James Joyce. Without the translational culture of Montreal, there would be no Nicole Brossard. Without the translational culture of Calcutta, there would be no Tagore. Um, Barcelona, it's almost all the writers of Barcelona are so keenly uh, tied and uh, connected to translation. And this is really, um, I would say, gives, gives me a kind of a cultural underpinning uh, for, uh, <coughs> for my work. This is a book I wrote two years ago. Um, I also perceived a shift from something, translation as something that takes place between languages and cultures to something that constitutes culture to something that prefigures culture. Uh, the United States are primarily comprised of immigrants, migrants, and refugees, and thus translation operates in the Americas not as an isolated linguistic or literary activity, not as a post-colonial metaphor or a trope, but an ongoing multi-directional activity with the power to include or exclude. My state of Massachusetts, 93 languages are spoken. I run a center. We translate 80 of those on almost a daily basis. Over 150 languages are spoken in the United States. One in five children are born into a non or limited English-speaking family. The United States is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. Translation has become one of the main factors in building and maintaining small communities in the lives of individuals, ensuring language preservation, cultural memory, and individual survival. In this paper, I suggest that literary translators, publishers, and creative writers have been far ahead of the academics, pioneering what I call the translation turn in creative writing, precisely what uh, the turn that Susan Bassnett so prophetically predicted in 1998. Okay, this paper has four parts, the literary translation part, the, what I call indirect translation, which is a form of self-translation by writers not born in the United States but who moved there and are writing in English about events that happened in another place and time. 
and then cultural translation by writers born in the United States, often second-generation immigrants, writing about non-USA culture events. And then four, I'll look at uh, writers who have turned to translation as a theme or a character in their own work. So this is uh, on literary translation, part one. Translations, while not booming, are experiencing a significant growth. Spurred by what might be called the Stieg Larsson phenomenon, publishers know that large sums of money can be made in, via literary translation. Larsson's book, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, all translation, translated by Ray Kaland, have returned translation to the very top of the bestseller lists. From Norstedt's in Stockholm through uh, McLehose Press in London, through Vintage in Knopf in New York, the publishers have made millions, enabling them to take risks on further translations. Those presses which have not directly profited note the success and are taking further chances as well. The profits are coming in, not just from the translations themselves, but from secondary translations. The English translations are being used to springboard into any number of other cultures. And then there's also the movie adaptations, Yellowbird Nordisk film productions, have put together um, um, a series of films called Men Who Hate Women based on the novels, and they are being subtitled and distributed in dozens of languages. Hollywood is planning a remake uh, starring Daniel Craig with the corresponding translations and international distribution, so the final profits are still coming in. Certainly more risks will be taken by, in the, by U.S. publishers uh, in the future. I also note briefly here that Larson's novels can also be studied as not just original writing, but as translation adaptations of the Pippi Longstocking tales. The main character, Elizabeth Salander, is a slightly older and an updated version of the nine-year-old dysfunctional troublemaker whose mother had died and who feuds with her father. Pippi, like Elizabeth, has eating disorders, is exceedingly thin, but is unusually strong. And uh, she's alienated at school, teased by classmates, dresses in an odd fashion, and gets into trouble with all sorts of groups, including the police. If one looks at the bestseller lists and the prizes for creative writing, translations are increasingly visible. Charlotte Roche's Feucht uh, Gebiete, translated by Tim Moore as Wetlands and published by Grove Press, has been an Amazon bestseller for some time now probably due to the sexually explicit nature of the content. The success reminds one of Lawrence Venuti's commercial success with, uh, in his translation of Melissa P's 100 Strokes of the Brush Before Bed, also published with Grove, which sold over 100,000 copies despite problems with the translation, including its popular pornographic tone and its liter literal and awkward metaphors. Sex sells, your particularly European sex, particularly written by young women. Um, uh, Yelena Jelanik has profited uh, from this uh, phenomena as well. The Nobel Prize also doesn't hurt. <laughs> the big names in international circles also sell well in the United States. The new star to do well is uh, Roberto uh, Bolaño, whose novel, uh, 2006, Six, six, translated by Natasha Wimmer, published by Farrah Strauss and Jerome, has enjoyed bestseller status and won the National Books Critic Circle Award. 
This is remarkable given the length and density of the book, um, something that U.S. readers normally do not handle very well, and few publishers take risks upon. This has led to translations and reissues of earlier Bolaño translations, including the story collections By Night in Chile, Savage Detectives. The same might be said of writers such as uh, José Saramaggio, the 1998 Nobel Prize winner, who continues to do well in the United States. Margaret Jill Costa has just translated his Death with Interruptions, which has been reviewed very well and sold very well, leading to an increase in Saramago's earlier work. Haldor Laxness, Nobel Laureate from 1995, also benefited from this phenomenon, not just with his new work, but with the recent translations of his earlier novels, including uh, Philip Rofton's The Great Weaver from Kashmir, published by Archipelago Books, and recently very favorably reviewed in the New York Times Review of Books. Archipelago takes me to another phenomenon. This would be the smaller presses. Archipelago publishes a lot of European writing, including authors such as Laxness, Kleist, Breitenbach, Nerval, Ponga. Uh, to date, they have published 40 books in 20 languages. Uh, Another press, Open Letter Press, founded in 2008, a small new press, uh, is affiliated with the University of Rochester. The editor, Chad Post, brings out 12 books per year, including authors such as Matsura, Mariona, Doraz, Ugrezic, Ser, Volpi. Many of these books have enjoyed very strong uh, reviews and sales. Open Letter is also affiliated with the website 3%, which contains uh, Chad Post's popular blog on translation and translation events, as well as reviews, news, and discussions. Chad has collected this in a new book. It's just out. He's selling it for $2.95, I think. It's called The 3% Problem, Rants and Responses on Publishing Translation. He's a very bright young man, very dynamic speaker. And these internet sites allow you to publish translations at a very reduced cost, and there's no overhead, there's no shipping, there's no... Uh, and it's really opened the door to publishing in the United States. Um, probably the most prevalent uh, website that the writers are visiting is this website, Words Without Borders, uh, founded in 2003 by Elaine Mason who also, incidentally, is an editor for Norton. So she takes some of the books that she does for free on her web and uh, recommends them to Norton. Um, they publish primarily via their online journal, soliciting work for free from translators, just wanting to be published, and volunteers working behind the scenes. So far, they have published over a 1,000 pieces in 80 languages. Authors include the most distinguished writers, Claesio, Muller, Darwish, Sebald, Patterson, and new and unknown writers. They have also published five books now, including anthologies of world writing, such as the Echo Anthology of World Writers, or their first anthology, Words Without Borders. They have a nice volume on uh, writing about the fall of the Berlin Wall. There are many other small presses as well working similar to Open Letter and Archipelago and uh, um, 
Words Without Borders, combining this internet presence with some publishing. Um, Anchor Press, the new press, Europa Editions. Europa Editions was founded in 2005 by former Italian editors Sandro and Sandra Ferri. Europa Editions publishes both original writing and translations, but over 75% of their texts are translations. They publish high literary texts, but they also publish crime, mystery, children's fiction, etc. Their big hit to date has been Muriel Barbary's The Elegance of the Hedgehog, translated from the French by Alison Anderson, which spent 35 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. One of the things, I'm, I'm sort of disputing Venuti's thesis that in the United States, no one reads translation, and all translation is domesticated. It's once you get out of the main publishers and look at the small journals and the internet sites and the underground journals and the community newsletters, there's tons of translation there. And then there's indirect translation. A lot of, once it gets translated into English, once it's up on the web, I mean, if you go to Words Without Borders, you can find secondary and tertiary translations of the very same works. All right, indirect translations. Oh, exchanges, a very nice uh, site at the University of Iowa. Uh, started off as a student journal, and it's growing. It's growing nicely. And I think I just circulated a new call for submissions from them. Uh, they're really branching out. Okay, indirect translations. Indirect translations refers to a uh, phenomenon which, in which writers uh, not born in the United States but moved here at a very early age. They have become citizens. They've married into the culture. They've completed their education, often attending creative writing programs. Uh, Jhumpa Lahiri, for example, at Brown. Um, on So many of them... I should say it. I'll come back to that. Um, the subject matter that many of these writers are writing about is less about life in the United States and more about their experience or their family's experiences in their native countries, events that clearly took place in another language. While not called translations, they most certainly contain much direct and indirect translation. I only have a time to mention a few. I'll interrupt with another Susan anecdote. When she came to UMass and gave a talk in our International Visitor Series, the topic was travel writing. I don't know if you remember that. And, and there you talked about how travel writers also hide translation within their texts. Uh, they don't reveal who their sources are. They don't reveal who their guides are. They don't reveal who their translators are. They talk as if they were an authority when they're really cannibalizing the culture and taking much out of it from another authority's uh, perspective. And that seed is sort of the seed that's behind this, this, this whole project. I want to talk about Juno Diaz, born in Santo Domingo, but emigrated to the United States in 1974 when he was six years old. His book, The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Huao, was published by Riverhead Books, a division of Penguin. 
climbed very high among the bestseller lists. I actually read the book in Spanish first because the Spanish volume is always there with the English. Uh, sometimes only the Spanish version is there. My wife gave it to me for Christmas. She didn't know what the original was and what the translation was. And the book, the book's been uh, translated uh, into Spanish by the Cuban creative writer uh, Achi Ovejas. And she's a very fine creative writer in and of herself. And she's cleverly translated the footnotes and the packaging. And so that when Juno Diaz gives a footnote about American culture, she'll give a footnote about Dominican culture. Or if Juno Diaz gives a footnote about, I don't know, some video game that he was playing or something, she'll, f and you can't, they're not really translator's notes. They're, they're, they're translations, they're, they're sort of, I don't know, writing beyond translation. They're sort of innovation, an innovative translation strategy. The book is actually about two periods in Oscar's life, or Juno Diaz's life, as a very young child under the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic and later in New Jersey as an adolescent. Both sections contain um, a streetwise brand of Spanglish. Um, the author and the translator sprinkle in many footnotes. The result in both the original and the translation is a creative blend of Dominican, Cuban, youth, traditional culture, neologisms drawn from Afro, Latin, Caribbean, pop, hip-hop, sci-fi, video games, TVs, and movies. Uh, Kalat Hosseini, I include him in this list. He was born in Kabul, but his family sought refuge in the United States in 1980 when he was 15. His books, The Kite Runner, published in 2003, a Thousand Splendid Sons, published in 2007, has spent years on the bestseller list. I just looked this Sunday, and A Thousand Splendid Sons is still in the top 20 on the paperback list four years later. It's quite remarkable. Um, the Kite Runner is set in uh, Afghanistan during the Taliban period and tells the story of Amir from a well-to-do family and his friendship with Hassan, a, a servant boy. The Kite Runner was the third best-selling book in the United States in 2005, made into a movie in 2007. A Thousand Splendid Sons was published in 2007 by Riverhead, also set in Afghanistan during the last 30 years. It tells the story of Amariam and Layla and the abuse of women by family members and by the Taliban. It spent weeks on the top of the bestseller list. Movie rights are being negotiated. I also include, although slightly older, I include the, the Somali refugee Ayan Hersi Ali, who emigrated from Holland, uh, where she ended, who emigrated to Holland from Somalia, where she first served as an MP. Uh, Hirsi Ali published a book called Infidel in Holland in, in the United States with the Free Press, another one of those small independent presses, which is in Florence, Massachusetts, which is the town I lived in when I first moved to Amherst. Uh, um, the Free Press publishes mostly journalism and social science texts. Infidel, which spent many weeks on the bestseller list in the United States, is listed as an original book. No translator is mentioned, although English is her fifth or sixth language, and she had only recently come to the United States. 
The book is actually a translation of her 2006 book, Mein Freiheit, which is also listed as an original work in Dutch, but with some searching, I found some evidence that she had help from a ghostwriter. So I suspect that the book's been doubly translated or doubly ghosted. Um, I'm not diminishing the quality of the book or the harrowing repeated escapes from ethnic violence in Somalia, the prejudicial experience she experienced uh, as an independent-minded girl growing up there, nor am I minimizing the problems of the, her experience as a refugee in Europe. My only point is that, to a large degree, this is a translation masking as an original writing. Hirsi Ali, who worked as a translator for many years in Rotterdam, uh, should give her translators and her ghosts some credit. Once I begin thinking in terms of books masquerading as translations uh, or self-translated uh, by authors from a non-existent original, they are everywhere to be seen. Vergesi's Cutting for Stone. Steingart, Steingart, who moved to the United States when he was seven, but didn't speak a word of English until he was 14. He really resisted assimilation. Alexander Hemang, Daniel Mue Nuden, um, uh, from Pakistan. Um, as the United States is a nation of immigrants, and we're experiencing new waves of immigration, this category is large and growing. I could add Jamaica Kincaid from Haiti, Chang Rae Lee from Korea, uh, the current sensation Yi Yun Lee from China. Cultural translation. This third group that I'm working on are writers who were born in the United States, and they write about non-USA cultures as if they were their own. This category I call cultural translation has been debated frequently in translation circles, and right here at work by uh, Susan and Harish and John. Much travel writing fits into this category, although I'm thinking now I may have to break travel writing out and do a whole chapter on it. Um, this is where the author becomes an ex ex expert on the foreign language culture, although I'm not necessarily speaking the language. I sort of come down in Professor Traviti's camp on this, although I'm still exploring it. Um, more often than not working with an interpreter, although the interpreter is seldom named. Uh, travel writers that I'm thinking about, I've been reading recently, uh, Paul Thoreau has the, a new book out. Paul Thoreau is from Boston, Massachusetts. He lives out on Cape Cod. He'll be speaking at UMass next week. He's an alum of UMass. But he's just published a book called uh, A Dead Hand, A Crime in Calcutta. Um, and I don't know if you like Thoreau's work or not. He's a pretty bitter and uh, uh, writer. He doesn't see the positives in a lot of the cultures that he visits. And um, this book on Calcutta is no exception. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, a decaying writer and a decaying city and a decaying British culture in a decaying city. It's not a very positive book. If you compare it to uh, Jeffrey Morehouse's book, it's just so different. Morehouse, Morehouse sees the poverty and the despair, but he also sees a kind of inner strength. And he, he gets out of the hotels and 
um, sort of Western expat communities, and he gets into the neighborhoods, and he sees, I don't know, he sees little groups of people talking about Ray's films or politics uh, in, uh, I don't know, leftist politics usually during that period, or uh, even neighborhood celebrations. Uh, um, and Jeffrey's book has a kind of inner beauty to it that I would say that um, that Thoreau doesn't really have. Um, however, I will say that Thoreau gets me. I, there are moments in his books where I just stop and and he has a brilliant scene in this book where uh, the main character is a, is a guy named uh, Jerry Delfont, and he's an older man, and he's an older travel writer, and he's, he's, he can't write anymore. He's got writer's block, and he's, he goes to try to write this book on Calcutta, and nothing comes out. Um, and in one of the scenes, he introduces himself as a character in his own novel. So Paul Thoreau comes and sits down at a cafe and meets uh, the main character of this book, which is really an autobiographical character. So the sort of Thoreau talking to himself in a cafe. And they're both travel writers. One's come to do a story on Calcutta. He only has two or three days to do the whole story. And the other one's been there for a year trying to write a book. And they talk about travel writing. Or, well... They don't talk about travel writing. They, they talk around it. Not, they don't give away any of their sources. They don't give away any of their impressions. They don't give away any of their uh, insights. Uh, um, so, um, but they're watching each other the whole time. What this person, how this person dresses, who this person is looking at when they're not looking at me. They're just casing each other couple of wary prize fighters and it reveals that little section reveals uh, I don't know the intrusive uh, proprietorial predatory nature of the travel writer in a culture so I'm hoping to take that little scene and build it out into some sort of uh, larger thinking about translation and travel writing um, other people I'm thinking about including in this section would be um, Elizabeth Gilbert, The Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know how that's doing here, but it sold 10 million copies worldwide. It's made into a major film starring Julia Roberts. Uh, it spent 187 weeks at the top of the bestseller list. That's three years. And this is a travel book. You know, Eat is Italy and Pray is India and Love is Bali. Um, but interestingly, her, in Italy, she befriends a Swedish woman. That becomes her cultural guide. Uh, in India, she befriends an American. He becomes her cultural guide. And then uh, in Bali, even her guru that she does, goes there to study with doesn't recognize her and is not there for much of the time. So she spends much of the time with an Argentine guy. And this is the problem. Um, Bali is romanticized as a place for escape and love, and um, I don't know if you know a little bit about Bali. Uh, um, there's a civil war going on. There's uh, twenty, thirty, forty thousand orphans in the streets. Uh, it's the biggest 
largest supplier of women through sex trafficking in the world. And it's, um, so I, I don't know what I'm going to say about that, but it's going to be a little bit along um, Harsh Trivedi's uh, approach to uh, cultural translation. And there's many more. Um, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Dave Eggers, um, who's from Boston, journalist by training, and he uses reportage in his work. Um, the book that I'm going to talk about is What is the What? The Autobiography of uh, Valentino Ashok Dung. Um, it spent months on the top of the bestseller list, was the final for the National Book Critics Award for fiction. For fiction. It shows how broadly the category of fiction is considered in the United States. The book is actually the story of Ashok Dung, a Sudanese refugee, one of the lost boys of Sudan. From southern Sudan, separated from his family when Arab militias attack his Dinka village, Ashok flees on foot, first to Ethiopia, then to Kenya, and finally ends up in the United States. Although upon arrival, he speaks not a word of English. It's quite a story, but it's not Edgar's. It's Ashok's story, memoir, odyssey. But Edgar's lists himself as the author. Ashok is also the translator, as it is in interviews with Edgar's that Edgar's receives the story. Edgar serves more as a reporter than a ghostwriter in this case, blurring the boundaries between translation, autobiography, biography, memoir, faction, fiction. It would surprise me if Edgar spoke any Dinka or Somali or Arabic or even French. In Edgar's defense, he says that he recreated the conversations, streamlined the complexities, added historical background, performing his own form of retranslation. Clearly, expropriation is going on here. Um, fortunately, Edgar's and Ashak have established a foundation to help refugees of Somalia with the profits and publicity of the book. I wanted to talk a little bit about Lisa C., <coughs> Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, I'm going to keep going on. Then. All right, this last category is uh, uh, translation as a topic in creative writing. Um, we heard a little bit about Leila Abulela's book, The Translator. Uh, where she uh, meets a uh, professor in uh, Scotland, I believe, yeah, Edinburgh. Um, um, the translation turn in creative writing can best be, be best illustrated by the use of translation as a theme or a topic. And translation and identity in the Americas, I wrote about the fictional turn in Latin America, citing scholars such as Elsa Vieira, Adriana Pagano, Jose Maria Arrojo, and discuss case studies of translation as a topic in creative writing by writers such as Borges, uh, Mar Garcia Marquez, uh, Vargas Llosa. Um, the Brazilian scholar Elsa Vieira has, uh, was first to notice this trend, coining the phrase the fictional turn in translation studies to refer to the phenomena. Uh, I have Michael Cronin's uh, uh, wonderful book, uh, Translation Goes to the Movies, as a kind of guide to this section. Um, where he looks at films like Babel and The Interpreter. Uh, I think you have uh, a little of what John was talking about in, uh, as well in that book. Uh, what's the language? Klingon? 
Is that the language? No. Yes. I have, I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm not a reader of that trilogy. But in the past few years, this phenomenon has exploded. Um, here's a list of some John Jean Kwok girl in translation. And she's planning a sequel to that. Wendy Nelson uh, Tokunaga, Love in Translation. She's working on a book called Marriage in Translation now, so I guess she married. <laughs> so I guess the love was successful. She'll probably have divorce in translation. <laughs> Do I hire the translator, Suki Kim, the interpreter, Paul Oster? I would say almost all of his books are about translation. He's, of course, a translator from French himself. But... Uh, John Crowley, the translator, uh, Jonathan Saffron Fur, everything, everything is illuminated. There are, uh, there are so many now. That's just the tip of the iceberg. This list can be extended. Chang Rai Lee's native speaker, Susan Choi's the foreign student, Gish Jen's typical American. Mona in the Promised Land with a daughter works not just as a Chinese-English translator between generations, but as an intralingual translator, finding a new language to break down cultural stereotypes. Jen's newest work, the forthcoming, I think it's out now, World in Town, it's out. Knop. Concerns not just the Chinese culture, but is primarily about Cambodian immigrants. And Gish Jen went and lived in the Cambodian American communities and learned Cambodian in order to write this. Uh, the topic has become a top one in translation studies circles. Klaus Kindle uh, at the University of Vienna is organizing a conference on this. I think it's last week. Last week. I think it's over. Yeah. Uh, he gave a little report on it, and he said he's found like 250 different novels that have translation as a theme. And, he uh, was uh, at the uh, he was at our little Atisa conference in New York last year, and he was talking about this. And he said he found in Canada he found four books with translation as a theme. And we had a bunch of people from Cats down there. Ah, oh, there must be uh, fifty or sixty in Canada that he has an inventory. Um, so even he, who's trying to collect everything and get an inventory of this, is just sc scratching the surface. In this uh, new global world of um, movement, migration, immigration, wars, refugees, displacement, exp exile, expatriation, it probably should be no surprise that the translator becomes a key figure in terms of negotiating a new existence in a new culture and language. The United States, as you know, serves as one of the most accepting nations in the world in terms of accepting new immigrants. In the last 50 years, ex accepting over 20% of the 190 million immigrants worldwide. Uh, the number of immigrants that come to the United States, it's double or triple of the leading countries of the world combined. If you would take all the European nations and put them together, it wouldn't not come close to matching. And this is just the 
uh, legal immigrants, not to mention the illegal immigrants. I understand there's 100,000 Chinese moving to the United States every month. Uh, we try to close our borders with Latin America, but it's absolutely impossible. And um, the new census figures aren't out yet on uh, uh, non-unlimited English-speaking peoples of the United States. They're starting to trickle out. We see some from cities, uh, I guess Cleveland came out, and it's shocking to see the increase in the non-English peoples uh, that have immigrated to cities all over the country. What interests me further is that the fictional depictions of translators allow the author to delve into issues of translation and identity and to add variables to the role of the translator that both compl complicate and humanize the figures. Most translation studies programs limit the translation encountered to fairly ideal conditions. The translators as presented in fiction coming from civil wars, discrimination against women, massive poverty, racial hatred situations as they do, have higher concerns than fidelity. Survival is at stake, personal ethics, family loyalties, community solidarity, and spiritual beliefs often override the ethics of the translation profession. I'm going to talk a little bit about John Crowley's book. Um, the main character in this book is Kit Malone. She falls in love with one of her subjects, the Russian poet in exile, who was teaching at a, a New England college. Um, he is an exile. He cannot publish in Russian anymore, and he cannot speak English well enough to write in English. He becomes quite dependent upon his translator in order to continue writing at all. Malone, the translator, becomes both his voice in the United States and, later, his voice back in Russia, where news of him and his work have disappeared. Her love for Phelan, the Russian uh, author, both causes her to focus on his translations rather than on her own poetry. But then it later helps her find her own voice when she returns to do her own creative work. Indeed, in a kind of reversal, she publishes a selection of Phelan's poems in her own book of creative writing, saying that the originals had been lost. My sense is, is that the Originals were lost. The originals were never really written down in Russia. Uh, they emerged from his sort of failed attempts, broken English, and that uh, she took them and um, turned them into poems. Crowley's book also takes place against larger geopolitical events. In Crowley's case, it's the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which Phelan is followed by the CIA agents and student protest groups on campus that are infiltrated by the FBI with the support of the campus administration. Translation, then, rather than being a footnote to world political events, is seen as fundamental to the success or failure of U.S.-Russian relations. Conclusions. I mean, I'm very optimistic about this uh, future for literary translation. The new presses the new creative writing programs, the new translation programs, the new interest by national, the new interest by business, government, and education, the new interest by local communities and immigrant groups. Uh, and
and I'm, maybe I talked to Chad Post about getting some data about what the volume of this translation is and then how that does compare to other countries. At a certain point, the distinctions between translation, first-generation translators, creative writers, second-generation, and third-generation writers tend to disappear. Indeed, with the exception of the Native Americans, all peoples of the Americas are immigrants, well-versed in acts of translation in and out of English. When does one cease to be an immigrant or a member of an immigrant family? post-translation, creative interference, translation without an original, transfiguration, creative borrowings, adaptations are all part of our literature, our very own culture, from Melville to Twain, Willa Cathard, Henry James, Hemingway, Stein, and now a new generation, Paul Thoreau, Gish Chen, Chang-Rae Lee, Sandra Cisnernos, uh, Bharati Mukherjee, to those in the United States, the domestic is already the foreign. And the foreign is already the domestic. The two are the same. To write about the foreign is to write about oneself. Travel, translation, and creative writing are so incestuously... In Think of our Westerns. Westerns are travel writings, people from the East Coast moving to the West. Travel, translation, creative writing are so incestuously interrelated that they become indistinguishable. My guess is that this is not just true of writing in the United States, but is, it is true as well of world literature. Who better to diagnose that situation than the translation studies scholar? Susan Bassinet has started this, on this journey of travel, translation, and world literature, and now we can never go back. Thank you. Thank you.